We'll, we'll be uh, in kind of a larger chunk this morning, but we're, we're going to be especially in chapter 7, uh, verses 2 through 12 will be our main text. And I, I'll need a volunteer later who wants to come up and read that for us. So Landon, I already see you. Just get prepped. All right, but um, I'll, I'll go ahead and kind of give us a paraphrase to catch us up with what's, what's going on. Because we've been in this series, uh, The People God Uses. And, and Jeff has been looking at Samson, who was just a mess. And then we, we look at uh, Hannah, this, this barren woman uh, that, that God uses. And Eli, this blind priest uh, who, who messes up quite a bit in the story, but God uses him. And, and Samuel, this little boy. And even when we're talking about God using them, well, using them for what? We have to remind ourselves of what, what God's plan is, what God is doing, is that humanity has turned from God, rebelled, God, rebelled from God, fallen from, from their place in creation as supposed to be worshiping God. And we've fallen from that woefully. And, and God wants to use a people. He wants to use Abraham's family to bless the entire world. To, to restore us to a place where we can worship God rightly. That's, that's the story of the Bible. That's God's rescue plan that's going on. And, and God wants to use these broken people, uh, Samson, Hannah, Eli, Samuel. And so we've been going through that story, but this week I, I want us to take a, just a little pause on, on that theme. And what we're going to look at is a few different things. One, one is that while God uses people, this is a story about the God who won't be used. Right? God has a plan that, that he wants to restore all creation and, and bring us into right worship with him and, and put us, make us what we were always meant to be. And, and he's willing to use us to be a part of that plan. But often we have our own plans. And, and God says, ah, I'm not going to show up for that. I'm, I'm not really around to be used by you. And so we're going to look through our text this morning and, and see how that becomes pretty clear. I'm going to walk us through chapters 4 through 6 because that's just a lot. Um, and you'll, you'll see why as we, we go through. It's, it's a lot of stuff to look at. Um, the, the, the first, what happens, we've just finished this passage where, where uh, Samuel has heard from God, right? And he's heard this message that this prophecy against Eli and his sons, it's going to come true. And this is the passage where it happens. Uh, it, it turns out that the, the Philistines and the Israelites are, are at war. They're having a battle. Uh, it's just, it's a border dispute, right? They're always fighting back, trying to encroach on each other's territory, and they're fighting this day, and, and the Israelites, they lose, and they go into camp, and it's like the team that's getting beat in a really bad game, like, come on, guys, what's go- we're getting beat out there, what's going on? We got to get our act together, and the elders have this idea, they say, the secret weapon, the secret weapon, we need to go get the Ark of the Covenant, it's just there in Shiloh. Let's go, let's send some people, get it, bring it back, and then we'll win because we'll have God with us. We just need to pause here and understand what this Ark of the Covenant is because this seems strange and foreign to us, say that God is there. And yes, we, we understand, and the Israelites understood, God is everywhere, right? The earth is his footstool, but, but, but he has said to his people that this is where my, my presence will be specially for you. Not that it's not everywhere else, but this is a, a place where as you come here, I will be God here for you. And so they understood it as this, this is a significant holy thing. And so if we bring this to our battle, surely we'll, we'll win. And, and God makes the strong point to them that he won't be used because God is not a good luck charm. They, they, bring, they bring this uh, ark 
Ark of the Covenant, and they bring it into their, their camp, and they start cheering. They're psyched. They're pumped. They're like, we're going to win now. And the Philistines here are like, well, what is going on over there? And they, they get wind of what's going on. They say, Guys, we got to fight hard because they got a God in their camp. This has never happened before. And so they, they get pumped. If you've ever been on a team and you've been in the locker rooms and you've heard the other team getting hyped in the locker room, like yelling and pounding and doing their chants, it's intimidating. But they, got, they said, okay, we got to step up. So they go and they beat the Israelites because God isn't a good luck charm. They, they, they defeat them and it's, it's bad. They, they take the Ark of the Covenant. They, they kill Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons. And when a messenger goes to tell Eli what had happened, he hears that they've lost the ark, he hears that his sons have died, and he falls over, and he dies. And just to make it worse, uh, Phinehas' wife, who's, who's pregnant, and near the time of delivery, she hears, and it sends her into labor, and, and she has the child, but, but she dies while giving birth. And, and she says, with her, with her last breath, name him Ichabod. Ichabod, No glory. No glory. The glory of Yahweh has departed. The ark is gone. Eli's family, his priest line is gone. Who's going to lead us? What are we going to do? There's no glory left. So we see this God won't be used. He's not a good luck charm. And then now the ark of the covenant is with the Philistines. And and what do they do? They do what you would actually expect an ancient Near East group to do. They they take this, this relic, this symbol of another nation's God, and they put it in their temple with their God. Because the ancient Near East understanding is, we've all got our gods. Israel has their god. We have our god. The Canaanites have their gods. And sure, if we're winning, our god's better. But we'll take their god and let him serve our god, and they'll just all be gods together. That's fine. And so they move the Ark of the Covenant into their temple. They go to bed. They come back the next morning. And I don't know if it's pronounced Dagon or Dagon, but it's one of the sweetest ancient Near East god names. Dagon? Like, that's pretty sweet. But he's laying flat on his face, right? Laying prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant. And the priests are like, well, that's, that's a really awkward coincidence. Let's just lift this back up, dust him off. That's okay. Let's pretend that didn't happen. And they go to sleep, come back the next morning. And again, he's laying flat on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. And his hands are broken off and his head broken off at the neck. They're like, okay, we're going to get this thing out of here. This is no good for us. And what they're realizing, what they're learning is God is not a member of their pantheon. God is not a member of their pantheon. You know, we, we, we read all about idolatry in the Old Testament. And I got to admit, I, I struggle with that for a long time. Just people talking about idolatry and how we're idolatrous and we have idols in our lives. And I would just look at the text and be like, but it's not the same thing. You know, they had, they had these carvings that they worshipped and that's a totally different thing that they're talking about and I don't I don't know if I've gotten older and wiser or just older and more cantankerous but guys we're an idolatrous people I don't know I don't know how we can't see it I mean if if you go to a sporting event if you go to the mall if you just drive down the highway and look at all the signs but but guys we we give worship we declare worth to so many things before God, the way we spend our time and our money. We, we worship at the altars of consumer, consumerism, of power, of sex, of violence, of just our own comfort. We're an idolatrous people. And, and the Philistines learned the hard way that no, God is not a member of your pantheon. He's not just one thing that you can worship among many other things. And 
So they, they get that out of there, and they're like, let's just store it in this town. And it's followed by a plague of mice, and everyone gets what the Bible very delicately calls groin tumors. <laughs> and they move it from there because they're like, get this thing away from us. And the mice and groin tumors follow, and it's probably just hemorrhoids. So th- there you go, Sunday morning for you. But this is the Bible. And, and every town they go to, it keeps falling. It's like, get rid of this thing. And finally they decide, let's send it back to the Israelites. We don't want this anymore. And so they make, you know, golden models of, of rats and tumors because that's a beautiful offering. They give that and they send it back to the Israelites. They put it on a cart. These cows take it and it gets to the nearest town, Beth Shemesh, and they're overjoyed. The Ark of the Covenant is back. Awesome. And they, they break up the wagon and sacrifice the cows and consecrate the Ark and themselves and, and everything is looking great. And then... 70 of them decide, let's, hey, let's look into this ark and see what's so special about it. And they're struck dead. What? <laughs> they're struck dead on the spot. And, and this is, I think this is hard for us to hear because we have this understanding of God, and, and rightly so. God is revealed in Jesus. God is love. What's he doing striking people dead for touching and looking inside a box? It's hard for us. And I think that we, we have to find this, this line of, of understanding because I think what God is making clear to his people is he's not a novelty item. He's not just some little trinket that, oh, this is fascinating, interesting. I want to check this out, know more about it. I'm interested now. Oh, no, I'm not. I'll go do something else. What happens here, guys, we have to find a way to walk this line between what, what I think you know, this very Puritan understanding of God is a sinners in the hands of an angry God. You've maybe heard that line, famous sermon during the Puritan era. Uh, a very damaging line for people to hear, we're sinners in the hands of an angry God? We're sinners in the hands of a loving God who has, who has dealt with our sin. That's, that's a good thing. But then the other, the other extreme that we can fall into is, that, I don't know another phrase for it besides Jesus is my boyfriend, right? We, we can say, oh, there's this angry God or, you know, Jesus just, man, he likes you just the way you are and, you know, there's, no, there's no, nothing for you to worry about. But, but the Bible talks about this fear of the Lord. It's, it's in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and it's, it's not this fear of, oh, this angry God, but it's this understanding that God is other. God is... He's transcendent. We have these two special words in, in theology. We talk about imminent, and that means near and close, within reach. Something you can grasp and transcend it. It means other, beyond. It's, it's too much for us. And we have this understanding that God is both transcendent and imminent. He's not just this thing that we can just cozy up to and, you know, it's me and God. It's you and the creator of the universe. Right? You and the creator of time, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end, it, it's, it's too much for us to grasp at the same time. It's this God who is eminent, who has come near to us. And so I, I just, as we look at this idea of, of coming near to the ark and it destroying these people, understanding that God is something other. It's a big thing when we talk about coming into God's presence, but thank, thank God that through Jesus we, we can talk about that. And so, that's our chapters 4, 5, and 6. This God who will not be used, right? He's not a good luck charm. He's not just another member of your pantheon. And, and, and he's certainly not a novelty item, not something to be trifled with. 
But now we're going we're gonna to change gears a little bit as we get into chapter 7. The people in Beth Shemesh say, okay, we don't want this ark here either. And they send it off to this place, Kiriath Jerem. It's the nearest high place. So I think that's a good place for the ark. We'll put it there. And it, it stays there for 20 years. And Landon, did you want to you wanna come read? Yeah, come on, man. Passage isn't going to read itself. All right, you want to you use my Bible? Here it is. All right. It's all right if you mess up. So remember, yeah, big words, just read with confidence. You can start here at verse 2. Okay. All right, go for it. It was a long time, 20 years in all the, that the ark remained at... Yeah, KJ, KJ. there you go. KJ, and all the people of Israel and haven't mourned and thought, sought after the Lord and Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then then rid yourselves of the forgin foreign foreign gods and the Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of your hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bows and Ashtoreth and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israelite, Israel at Mizpah and I will intercede intercede with the Lord for you. When they and when they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord on the day they fast fasted. And there they confessed, "We have sinned. We have sinned against the Lord." And Samuel was a leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the Rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of heard of it, they were afraid because of of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and a hand of 
offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near the two engines. Engage Israel in battle, but the day of the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mitzvah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He he named it Embezer, saying, Far has the Lord helped us so Good job. Thank you, Landon. All right. All right, so we've turned from this God who won't be used, and what I want us to look at and see in this part of the passage is the things that God uses. Now, certainly if we're talking about the people God uses, God does use Samuel here, but I think that there's a lot happening in this passage that that we see this is is where God wants to step in. This is where God says, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to work here. And, and one of the things that we see is that God uses a broken and humbled heart. God uses a broken and humbled heart. The, the ark had been, had been taken away from the people. It had come back, but it, it had been in this high place, Kiriam, how is it pronounced? Kiriath Jerem, for, for 20 years. And, and so it hasn't been at the tabernacle. And it's just been guarded by this guy we read about in verse 1, Abinadab. But they're, they're not worshiping there. And the people begin to lament. They begin to mourn and cry out saying, saying, God, we, we need to worship you. We need to, to be in right relationship with you. And Samuel says to them, if you're returning to Yahweh with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of all these Baals and Ashtoreths, all this other stuff that you're worshiping. Right? What we're recognizing here is that there's been a change of heart for the people. They're coming with a broken and humbled heart. And the, the language is very reminiscent of what we see in Psalm 51. When, when David is, is crying out and confessing to God after, after he has had a man killed so that he could cover up his adultery with this man's wife. This is what's in the Bible, guys. But, but he comes to God and, and he says, God, I know that a broken and humbled heart, a broken and contrite spirit, you, you won't refuse. Because David knows this is the starting place. This is where God says, okay, I can work with this. You're not coming to me because you think that I'm some lucky charm. You're not coming to me because you think that, you know, now is a good time, but you're ready to pour everything out and, and come to me. And so I can, I can work in this situation. God, God is ready to come and use a broken and humbled heart. 
And the next thing we see God use is that he, and these things will be a little bit, I don't know, maybe uncomfortable for us to talk about because we're, we're Protestants and evangelicals. But we see God using practices and places to, to connect with his people and, and to speak to his people. And when you talk about places, who, who can shout out real quick where, where this whole scene went down? Anyone? Anyone? Mitzvah. How did you know that? Because it said it seven times in that passage. Seven times. Did you ever tell a story like, well, the other day we went to the store, and while we were at the store, we got something at the store, and the store, like, they're just saying it over and over and over again. Why? Because the author wants you to recognize this is important. This place is important. So what, what's important about mitzvah? Well, there's been two things that have happened there so far in the biblical story. One is Jacob is on the run from Laban. He's just worked about 20 years of labor to earn two wives from Laban, and Laban kind of cheated him. And he's like, I'm not hanging out here anymore. And he, he takes his wives, and he's on the run, and Laban's like, whoa, you can't just run away and take my daughters. And so he chases him down, and he, this is where they, he catches up to him. And it could have been bad. could have been bloody. could have been really ugly. But this is where they make peace, an uneasy peace that they put up an altar, and they say, you know, may God watch over you, and if you do anything wrong, then... But they make peace. Then, fast forward several years later, just a few years before this incident, but we're in the book of Judges. And I'm not going to go into all the details because it's, I mean, it's a gory story, but, but something terrible happens to this woman. And, and the Benjamites are, are the ones who are guilty of this. And the rest of Israel hears about it. And they gather together at Mitzpah. And they begin to fight against the Benjamites. It's civil war, and they're going to blot out this entire tribe of Israel because of this one thing. And, and it's at Mitzpah that they make peace. That they find a way forward that they reconcile. So Samuel says, hey, if you, if you really want to come, if you, you really have a humbled and contrite heart, then let's go to the place of reconciliation. Let's, let's go to the place where we can find a way forward, where we can make peace with God. Places are important. They matter to us, and we need to be careful because I think sometimes we think, oh, you know, there's nothing special about a place, and sure, there's nothing, like places are just places, and it's all God's creation, but we gather here every week together, not because there's anything special about these, you know, four walls. It's more than four walls, but you know. There's nothing special about this building other than it's the place that we gather. We're here, and so there's something special about that. I have a picture for you guys. Reed's going to throw it up. This is the waterfall that I proposed to Beth at about 12 years ago. And that's not the picture of 12 years ago. This is just this summer on sabbatical. We got to stop and go there. We climbed up to that ledge, and that's, that's where I proposed to her. That's a really special place for us. We went there this summer, and Reed, you can show the next picture. This is 12 years later, what happened. <laughs> but, but being there with our boys was, was special. Not because there's anything inherently special about that place, but for us, that place has memories, and, and it's powerful to go there with my kids and to play around in the water and to remember 12 years ago when we were stupid and young and making all these plans. And it, There's something special about that. Places can have that power, and, and so, can, so can practices. What do we see them doing in this passage? Uh, they're, they're sacrificing a lamb, and they're pouring out water on the ground. Who knows why they're pouring out water on the ground? If you know, please tell me, because there is no other record of it in the Bible. No, there's no, nothing in Leviticus that says, and when you come before God for reconciliation, pour out. We don't know. 
And commentators have all these ideas. One is it's the symbol of us pouring out our tears. And so we're pouring out this water on the ground and say, God, we've cried a lot. Uh, Another is to say they fasted that day. And so also they're pouring out water. We're not going to eat. We're not going to drink. We're totally dependent on you, God. But we don't know. It's probably something along those lines, but we, we really just do not know. But what's significant for us to see is they're doing a physical act to represent something spiritual. And that's, that's a good thing. It's, it's, there's, there's nothing powerful about pouring water out on the ground. Nothing magical takes place when that happens. But they're saying something true about themselves. And because we are enfleshed beings, we have skin and bones, we do things with our skin and bones and work it out so that it can work itself into us. It makes sense. As they pour out that water, they, it's not enough to just say, you know, God, we're really sorry and we've cried a lot. It's, it's to pour it out to say, God, this is what it's been like. Or to say, God, we're really dependent on you. No, we are really dependent on you. We don't have food or water. We're depending on you today, God. And, and it's good for us. That's why we come here. It's why we sing songs with our mouths and we open them and we care to do that. It's not, we don't just sit there and think the words and that was good. No, it's, we're, we're flesh, fleshly beings that do that. And we come and we take bread and we take a cup and, and we eat and we drink. We don't just say, you know, we're remembering Jesus, but we, we remember him. We take part in that. We don't just look at the water. We get in the water and we're baptized. Because these practices, they, they have a way of working into us and, and, and bringing us deeper into knowing who God is. And God uses these things. There's no power in them, but God, God can work through them. And we also see God using memorials and reminders. You know, tomorrow's Remembrance Day. And a lot of you have your poppies. It's a reminder. Right? right? We're reminding ourselves of, of what has happened, of, of blood that has been shed, of sacrifices that have been made. And, and that, that line, lest we forget. Because we don't want to forget. We don't want to go to a place where we're doing that again. Because we understand that, that war is an ugly thing. And so we remind ourselves. We see that as valuable. And tomorrow, a lot of you are going to gather at the Cenotaph. Right? It's this big rock. And the rock itself is just a rock. But it's more than that. It's a memorial. It's a symbol. And it's, it's an unmarked grave for all those who gave their lives. And so those memorials and reminders, they serve a purpose. They help us to look at something and remember something meaningful. And that's what, what Samuel does. Samuel sets up a stone. He calls it an Ebenezer, a stone of help. And what I, what I want to submit to you guys today is that, that we in our own lives need to be setting up stones of help. We need to be looking for these stones of help. We, we need to be looking for places where God has shown up in our lives and done something. And we need to find ways to remember those and to remind ourselves of those. And so, and I'll submit to you, this is very biblical. This is what God is telling them in, in, in Deuteronomy, right? He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And he says, I want you to tie that. I want you to put it on your wrist. I want you to put it on your foreheads. I want you to put, put it on, on your gates as you're going and talk about it. Remember, when your children ask questions, remind them, say, we were slaves in Israel, but God showed up and God saved us. And so we can trust in him. He's a faithful God. We need to have those types of stones of help to remind us of who God's been. Because that's the first thing that we see about stones of help is that they point backward to point forward. 
They point backward in order to point forward. They show a time or a thing that God has done. They remind us of how he showed up and that he was faithful so that we can look forward to the future. We can look into these moments of despair and crisis and say, God shows up in these moments. Remember, remember what he did here. Remember how he delivered us from Egypt. Remember how he, he parted the Red Sea. And so when we're in this place, in this moment, we can remember that kind of God. That's why he sets up the stone in the middle of the field. So when they walk by, they can look and they can remember. And they can say, okay, these trials that we have ahead, these, these difficult times, these things that we're unsure about, God was enough. God met us in that place. We have to remind ourselves of that. We have to remember that we, we are very fickle people as human beings. And we might experience God's love and protection and, and be all over. We're on that mountaintop. And then it's just weeks later and we're in the valley. And we have to remember how God met us and provided. I would submit that Advent is a good time as we're coming up to that in a few weeks. Advent is a good time for us to be thinking about these Ebenezers and maybe integrating them into, into your daily reflection and worship. Because Advent is all about the coming of God. The, the arrival of God. And so maybe we need to be thinking, where, where has God shown up before in my life? How has he shown up and, and provided for me and met me in a real way? And we can integrate that into talking about Advent and, and God coming in flesh. So they point backward to point forward. They also point to our need. And Eben Ezer points to our need. And that the, the phrase Eben, stone, Ezer, help. And that Ezer, it's this word that, uh, it means help. But it's not the word you would use, you know, like when Beth texts me, hey, can you come help with the groceries uh, to carry them inside? <laughs> That's something, it's, uh, it's something that you could not do on your own. Right? It's something that you're, you're hooped unless you get help. This is the word that the psalmist used all the time. God, come and help me. Deliver me. Rescue me. So this is, the stone is, is pointing to our deep need. That we couldn't do this on our own. That, that God has been our salvation. God has rescued us. And that's critical because I think as we talk about what these stones look, in our, look like in our lives, we need to see the contrast of that. We, we can have memorials. We can have things that we look at that are not pointing to our need. We can have things that we look back and reminisce and think, oh, that was, really, that was a really nice time and that was great. But that's not what's happening here. That's, we read in Genesis 11 of another type of monument that was being built, the Tower of Babel. That was all about how great they were. Right? Let us, let's make a name for ourselves but an Ebenezer is, is saying, this is about God who has helped me. And that leads to this last point is that ultimately these Ebenezers, they, they point to someone greater. They point to someone beyond ourselves. And Ebenezer is always something that's going to, as, as they walk through that field at Mitzpah, as they see this, this stone, lift it up, it's going to point not to their victory that day and what they did, but it's going to point to God and what he's done for them. And so I, I want to submit to you that, that for the believer, I mean, there, there are many things that you can look at in your life and feel like, yeah, this is a tangible reminder for me of, of God's presence and what he's done. But I, I want to submit to you that 
for the believer, the, the cross is an excellent Ebenezer for us. It's a great thing for us to, to look at that will point backward to what God has done in history, to point forward to what he wants to do through us and continue to do as he reconciles the world to himself. Also points to our need as he's met us in our sin and death and he saved us. And it points to someone greater as it points to Jesus who was given the name above every name that every knee may bow and every tongue confess. And so we're going to do something just a little bit different this morning. And it may, may feel uncomfortable or awkward for you. Um, but what, what I'm going to ask is we're going to pray here in a moment. And when we pray, we're going to, I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes open. You know, a lot of times we close our eyes, bow our heads. Not in the Bible. <laughs> it's okay. It's a good thing. It, it helps drown out distractions. That's why we do it. It's, it's really nice. So I'm not distracted by all the things I could be seeing or, or looking at. But we're going to pray with our eyes open. And, and I'm going to encourage you to, to put your eyes upon the cross. Make it really clear we're not praying to the cross. Right? We're, we're, this is a window through which we're, we're going to look and, and we're going to remember something that has happened, something that God has done. And we're going to allow it to, to push us to see God as our helper. God is the one who meets us in our time of need. So we're going to do that now. We're going to turn our eyes upon the cross and we're going to pray to our sustainer. Father God, we love you and we thank you for your love that's been shown to us on the cross. As we look, we, we remember, we're reminded of your sacrifice, God, of you coming and, and meeting us in our death. God, we're reminded of our, our need. God, that we were your enemies. While we were still your enemies, you reconciled us to yourself. God, while we were still lost in idolatry and worshiping anything but you and lifting up ourselves and our own desires. God, you came and you've met us and you've made a way for us to know you. And so God, we, we look to this cross because it points beyond ourselves and it points to you and to your deep love for us. Uh, we, we're reminded that you you humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that the name of Jesus, every knee might bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So God, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you meet us in our hour of need, that you're faithful. In your name we pray, amen. I'm going to submit to you that, that you are in the minority. It is an odd and peculiar group that spends time looking at an ancient instrument of torture and carrying out the death penalty in order to remind themselves of a deeper truth. But that's what we've done this morning. We, we have looked at an instrument of, of torture and death to remind ourselves of God who comes and meets us in those places of pain and death and despair and delivers us from them. So as we've prayed to be instruments of peace, we, we need to remember our God who turned an instrument of death into an instrument of peace. 
and trust that he can do that in our lives. And as we go out, remind ourselves, look everywhere you see, and you're going to see these Ebenezers, these stones of help that push you to see that God is faithful. And God wants to turn you into an instrument of peace, not, not just so you can be nice to people, but so that he can reconcile the whole world to himself in Jesus. That's my prayer for us this week. Go in peace.